Today's podcast was brought to you by You Shall Never Know Security, a collection of short horror fiction by J.R. Hamatashi, available now at Amazon.com. HPPodcraft.com It was in the year of the Red Moon, estimated as B.C. 173-148 by von Junst, that a human being first dared to breathe defiance against Gatanothoa and its nameless menace. This bold heretic was Tayag, high priest of Shabnigirath and guardian of the Copper Temple of the Goat with a Thousand Young. Tiyag had thought long on the powers of the various gods, and had had strange dreams and revelations touching on the life of this and earlier worlds. In the end, he felt sure that the gods friendly to man could be arrayed against the hostile gods, and believed that Shabnigirath, Nug, and Yeb, as well as Yig the serpent god, were ready to take sides with man against the tyranny and presumption of Gatanothoa. That was an excerpt from H.P. Lovecraft and Hazel Heald's story, Out of the Eons. You're joining us here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and we're joined once again with the delightful Kenneth Hyde. Thanks for once again for having me on. Thanks for coming. You're you're always adds so much to the show, and you're a treasure. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> a veritable treasure am I. <laughs> this has been particularly helpful because Chris is very tired from the newborn. I've got a bit of the flu right now, and so I'm really grateful that you're here to help us out with some of this stuff. Whatever I can do to add more nonsense to Lovecraft's writing about nonsense. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I want to thank our reader today, as he was last week, Mark Major out of Austin, friend of the show, all-around good guy. Thanks so much, Mark. You're doing a great job. Glad to hear your silky tones on the air once again. Thank you. And we were at chapter three of this book. We jumped ahead a little bit when we heard that opening quote. What, what, what's, the, what's going on here? We've we've got the mummy. This guy, Demerini, is connected. What the backstory of this mummy who was found out of this risen island of the Pacific. His backstory is connected with the Black Book of Von Yunz. And in chapter three, we kind of figure out what, what this all is, right? Yep. And this is the, the connection. This is the backstory that's in the Black Book. I wanted to mention before we, we jumped right into it, the notion of, of the uh, cylinder made out of a metal that doesn't occur on Earth with a scroll in it. That's the same device that Lovecraft uses in the mound, mound. which is another one of his revisions. Yep. So having a cylinder of metal that doesn't come from Earth and a scroll is sort of like his little signal. This is This is a revision history. It's not the same as regular Cthulhu mythos, so all the rules can change. Hmm. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. And th that story is similar to this one as well, in that it's got things that seem like they're part of Lovecraft's mythos, but are just a little different. He's, a he's able to, to shift it up. I mean, we, we talked last week about how this story is basically Call of Cthulhu in you know, one louder register, or, or one um, uh, pulpier register. And so we're getting not just the present-day Call of Cthulhu, but as we're about to see the pulse-pounding uh, Robert E. Howard-style action from the ancient and uh, and lost past. There's this... Uh, there's ancient land called Mu, M-U. Now, Ken, you were talking, now, now when you said Mu before, is that the same, that's not the same Mu. That's the same Mu, yes. It is, is the same Mu. Colonel Churchward, uh, James Churchward, uh, sort of used the name Mu to christen the theosophical lost continent in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Madame Blavatsky called it Lemuria, which was after the lost continent that early paleontologists and anthropologists had speculated was the reason that there were lemurs both in Madagascar and elsewhere in the Indian Ocean. They right. thought that there had been a continent that lemurs had lived on called Lemuria, a land bridge sort of a thing. Yeah. And then uh, Madame Blavatsky, who read pretty much everything in her career of making exciting things up, <laughs> decided that this lost, uh, this sort of 
massive speculatory land bridge had actually extended all the way out into the Pacific and was the Pacific version, the Asian version of European Atlantis, because Blavatsky is all about the East is older and more powerful and more important than the West. Atlantis is the West's myth, so she has to invent a, another sunken continent that's even bigger and even more sunken. And, <laughs> and, and so she calls it Lemuria. Now, at the same time, there's a guy named Brasur who is mistranslating Mayan codexes, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he has, they've made up sort of an alphabet that they think might be what the, the Mayan language sounded like, and he runs into a section in the Troano Codex that talks about a lost continent or a sunken land, which he names from his bad Mayan, Mu, M-U, right? Because ah. he figures that's what the Mayans call this lost land. Now, he thinks, Brasur thinks, that this lost land is the Mayan name for Atlantis. And another guy named <laughs> Le Plongeon, uh takes Brasur's mistranslated paragraph and goes bananas with it and comes up with this whole exciting story of the lost island of Atlantis, which the real name of which is Mu, and how it blows up and sinks, and the good Atlanteans all go to Egypt, where they are led by Queen Mu, and the bad Atlanteans go to the Yucatan to build evil pyramids. And that story is sort of like circulating around in the air when Churchward says, no, 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 you have it wrong. Moo is not Atlantis. Moo is Lemuria. And then he <laughs> writes this, wow. uh, I think, nine or ten volume series of books about Mew, which are full of thrilling tales of the Muvians colonizing Asia and building the pyramids and sailing around the world and inventing radium and I don't even know what all. Everything awesome that can happen, the Muvians have happen, and then all the natural gas belts underneath their continent explode simultaneously and Mew disintegrates and falls apart. Whoa. I know Lemuria from the Lynn Carter books that I read when I was a kid. The Wizard of Lemuria, the Thongor books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those are kind of a Conan kind of knockoff that I liked a lot. But I never knew that it was because of the Lemur connection that that's why it was called that. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a crazy story. That is a crazy story. And, and now I'm curious, Lovecraft, I mean, obviously he must have read about this and decided to use it, but I, I'm guessing he didn't think too highly of it because he's doing this under an assumed name or, or he's well, doing it for somebody else. You know, like this is kind of the crappy stuff that he's pawning off. You know, he say, he mentions Atl Atlantis in, in like the Call of Cthulhu and a few other things, but that's it really. Yeah. Well, when he's, when he's writing to, um, I think it's Clark Ashton Smith, he writes something on the order of, gosh, I wish I could get more of this theosophical, and I think he even uses the word nonsense, but this stuff, because it's weirdly like my own made-up history with lost continents of the Pacific and, and alien races that predate man right. and the rest of it. And he, he's sort of just jonesing for more of this stuff that he can recycle into his uh, stories. Oh. And he at this time, he's read Scott Elliott's Lemuria and Lost Continents or whatever, Lemuria and Lost Atlantis. And he's looking for more stuff. And E. Hoffman Price, who is his co-author on Through the Gates of the Silver Key, either was a theosophist or knew other theosophists and was able to sort of provide him with a lot more material. Yeah. I don't know that it included one of Churchward's books, but it certainly, you know, whatever he did include, name check Churchward, because by now Churchward is writing. Let's see, The Lost Continent of Mew comes out in 1926, uh, and then it's re-edited, uh, fix up in 1931. Uh, Children of Mew comes out in 31. The Sacred Symbols of Mew comes out in 33. So they're just being cranked out there in the bookstores that Lovecraft is walking past in Providence. The Mew is the, the, the big hotness. It'd be like if you were writing it now, it would be all about the end of the world in 2012. Right. Well, now, going back to the story, go, uh, what's going on? <laughs> is, well, it's a bit of a tangent, but it's a very it's interesting tangent. No, it's super cool because now it sort of makes sense why Lovecraft has taken this instead of reusing
using one of his other things that he's done before. Uh, so he does say that in the land of Mu, there was this province called Kana, and on Kana, there was this ancient mountain, this place called Yadith Go, where there was this cyclopean stoned structure that was made by the aliens of the planet Yagoth, which I guess are Migo, right? Well, Joshi differs, oh, I, will, yeah. I will point out. Joshi says that the spawn of Yagoth are the people who built the ruins on Yagoth that the Migo lived in, oh. that the Migo are latecomers to Yagoth. And if you remember from Horror of the Museum, have you done Horror at the Museum yet? We have, yes. yes. Okay, if you remember from Horror at the Museum, Rantigoth was worshipped by the spawn of Yugoth, but they're described as uh, sort of an underwater species in that one. Ah, yes. So Joshi's theory is that the spawn of Yugoth who dump Gatnathoa on the Earth are not the Migo. They're the people who come from Yugoth originally. They're not the aliens that later settle on Yugoth. That makes sense. That does make sense. I kind of enjoy my notion of, of the Migo flying around trying to get this horrible stuff off of Yugoth and just dumping it, you know, treating Earth as sort of the Bhopal. <laughs> their uh, <laughs> operations. But, you know, I certainly can't argue that there aren't two different species on Yagath, so I guess it's just a matter of aesthetics which one you pick. Right. Hmm. Now, the spawn of Yagath, uh, they all died out before any of the humans showed up, but they left something there, which was kind of a god or a demon or a thing, and that's what you what you said, uh, Gatnathoa. And he lives up in this structure that's at the top of the mountain at Yadith Go. And it's horrible, blasphemous thing, you know, typical Lovecraftian, unnameable creature of evilness yeah. and stuff. Lives unseen in the crypts beneath a fortress. Yes. Because supposedly... This, and this, of course, reminded me a little bit of um, the other gods. Right. Yeah, it does remind me of a lot of the other gods with um, Barzai the Wise going up to... Which, as the story goes on, it kind of has a parallel to that as well. But the people that lived down below would make sacrifices to this thing because they wanted to keep it happy. They were afraid that it would come down and, and just wreak havoc. And anybody that actually ever saw this thing would turn to stone and leather on the outside. But it would leave your brain on the inside functioning and you would go insane. Yeah. Horrible. Pretty horrible. There's some great writing in there too when he says they had to make sacrifices to Gadanathoa lest it crawl out of its hidden abysses and waddle horribly through the world of men. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I read that, I, I knew that that was what you guys were going to pick up on. <laughs> that waddle was going to be the nuzzle for this story. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know. I mean, there's something horrific in it. Just the fact that it, the way that he frames that verb in here makes it waddling, which should seem cute. <laughs> sound pretty awful. Yeah. No, it sounds awful. And then the fact that by looking at it, you turn to stone and leather and your brain yeah. is still alive in your head and you go insane in a body that doesn't work. It's just, that's wretched. That's pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, each year they sacrifice 12 young warriors, 12 young maidens to Natanathoa, Gadanathoa, to make sure that he doesn't come down or, or she come down and, and wreck havoc. And uh, there's a hundred priests of this dark god. It seems like they're almost the ruling class in this place. But there's one guy, and that's who we heard about in the opening paragraph of this episode, Tiog, who says, you know, I'm going to go up there and I, I think I can get the gods together against this god, right? Yep, because he was a high priest of, of, of Shabnigarith. Yeah. And he, he, you know, he thinks that Shabnigarith, Nug, Yeb, Yig, all of them are going to just team up and use their power to get rid of Gadanathoa because he's he's not of their ilk. He's he's something else entirely, and they just don't want him interfering with humans anymore. I guess the implication being that uh, Shabnigarath and Yig and Nug and Yeb are gods of the earth, and yes. since Gadanathoa is an alien, he doesn't belong here. But what I like is this sort of notion that Shabnigarath, you know, at least you know, in the land of Kana on the continent of Mu, is a good god. Yeah. <laughs> so used to Shabnigarath as being you know the liveliest awfulness of some other kind, but no, no, if you just 
just worship her, right? She's fine. Yeah. She's, a, she's a beneficent mother goddess. I don't know what <laughs> you haters are talking about. And oh, it's almost Lethian, right? That there's this war amongst the elder the, the elder gods and the and the great old ones. Yes, it is. Because later on, when Durleth picks it up, he sort of makes the gods have, uh, they're sort of good gods and bad gods and changes the Lovecraftian mythos a bit. And that's something that, you know, we won't, we're not going to go into the Durleth stuff, but but that's what you're referencing. Yeah. Uh, so Tayog's plan is to do some research and figure out how he's going to tackle Gadanathoa. And he gets some this this membrane, which is made from uh, Yakith lizard skin, and he writes this magic on a scroll of this very bluish material. It's like a leather skin stuff. It's really bizarre. And he encloses it in the cylinder of this metal that comes from Yagoth, and it's going to protect him so he won't turn to stone. And he says even if people put it on who are turned to stone, may turn back to normal. I'm a little fuzzy on his plan here. So he's going to go up there with his formula that can protect him from being petrified. And it says face to face with the god and with the power of Shemnigaroth and her sons on his side. Yeah. He might be able to bring it to terms. Yeah. What well, is that and it's vague, you know, and and this is remember this is a story that happened uh, like a hundred a hundred thousand years ago, right? Mm. So you know the details are a little fuzzy. You don't you don't need to know that exactly what he's going to do, but he's got the power <laughs> of the gods. Know. He's got the power of the gods, and he's going to go up there and show Gadanatho who's boss. However, the priests don't like that because their whole monopoly is based on the fact that they're the ones that know how to appease Gadanathoa, and if he goes and takes care of Gadanathoa, then their whole industry falls apart. His motivations aren't purely altruistic. I mean, he's going up there thinking, I might even get to be king or a god myself if I'm able to get this done. Their power is threatened by him as, as well. Yeah, exactly. So one of the priests decides, you know what? This this ain't gonna fly, so we're gonna, we're gonna sabotage him. And they sneak in and they make a cylinder just like his cylinder that's magical, but doesn't work. They switch, they switch the scrolls. So he goes, he doesn't check the scroll, obviously. Um, why would you? It'd be like checking your parachute before you jump exactly. out of a plane. Just exactly. waste of time. Why waste of time? He, so he goes up the hill and he's never seen again. And this is where the spin worked out because the priests, they tried to turn the public mind against Tiag by yeah. saying all these things that no man can prevail against Gadanato. In fact, he's going to make things worse by going up there. This is a sacrilege. But people are so, they don't want to, obviously they don't want all these people to die every year. So they're, they're hoping that he's successful. They're watching, yeah. they're waiting. And he never comes back. And that's it. Now, this is the part that kind of reminds me of, of Bartai the Wise going up in, in The Other Gods, where he, he he's going to go face the gods and, and see them where he wasn't supposed to, and he goes up, and he doesn't come back either. It's very similar. But now, generations pass, and at this point, the truth comes out over these generations that the priest went and swapped the scroll. It becomes part of the legend that he maybe could have actually defeated the god, but those priests generations ago were bad priests. But now the new priests are good priests, and so that all lasted for generations and generation until it it sank. But supposedly, some members of this priest cult, the cult of Kana, lived, and they were off-continent when it sank, and it continues on to this day. Right. They, they, this is the Cthulhu kind of stuff. There's a dark and secret cult that grew out of this. And some people say that that true scroll still exists somewhere. Yes. That uh, is the legend, that somewhere that true scroll is out there. And that maybe one day it'll be used to fight or defeat or come to terms with Gadanathoa, which doesn't seem to be really much of a priority because, you know, it's been 100,000 years and Gadanathoa hasn't really popped up at all. Well, fortunately, Gadanathoa sank with the rest of Muse, so yeah, they, exactly. they could put it on the back burner. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
So um, at the end of this chapter, Von Utz uh, says that he actually had some contacts with the cult, and that's how we sort of got a bunch of this information. And Dr. Johnson, who was who, who's the guy writing this whole story down, gets really nervous because he's starting to think that, oh, wait a minute, this sounds like my mummy. Because of the, the connection with the cylinder, his mummy might be Tyog. Right. And just to note, one of the places that von Yunz believes that the cult of Gatnathoa still exists is in the fabled subterranean kingdom of Kenyan. So we have, again, oh. another tie to the mound. There is a connection there. I miss that. <laughs> well, learning, learning all of this uh, makes him writhe with repulsion. It, as it would. As it would. <laughs> but he's still fascinated. So, yeah, he gets through all of the von Yunz uh, stuff. Oh, he says somehow I was glad, uh, vaguely glad that the volcanic island had sunk before that massive suggestion of a trapdoor could be opened. So presumably that's where Gadanathoa lives. Is yes, trapdoor. in that yeah. trapdoor and at the top of the mountain in the temple. Yeah. So that gets us into four. Now, in the spring, there's a bunch of news about crackdowns of cults in the Orient. There's a lot of cult activity that's going on. And, and again, uh, reminiscent of the worldwide outbreak of cult activity uh, in Call of Cthulhu. And these cults, they all have different gods and things that they're worshipping and and they have names like Gatana, Tanatho, Thanthan, Gatin, you know, so very similar to Gatanathoa. Mm-hmm. Just kind of divergent over, you know, it's been 100,000 years, so things kind of change a little bit, you know, yeah. with time. There's also references to a true scroll of Nagob. And Nagob is this guy that had the scroll. Nagob is supposedly the one priest that kept hold of the, the true scroll that, that right. Tyog had originally made to defeat Gadanathoa. So supposedly this thing still exists and people are talking about it again now that this mummy has been found and it's in the press and people are coming to see it. And the wrong kind of people are coming to see it now. More and more frequently persons of strange and exotic aspect, swarthy Asiatics, these types. Swarthy Asians and long beards start showing yeah. up. Long-haired <laughs> nondescripts. <laughs> oh, Wait, beard, oh, beard. Yeah, I guess the bearded men is what he says. Yeah. Yeah, bearded brown men, though. Don't forget that. They're oh, brown. right. They're brown, of course. Yeah. Unused to European clothes. They're very uncomfortable. Yeah. And one of the guys, one of those visitors said, oh, wait, I, it's moved. It's different. It, the, the mummy has changed position slightly. And people are like, hey, whatever. You're out of your mind. And yeah. in September, a Polynesian guy attempts to steal the mummy. A swarthy Polynesian. Of course he's worthy, yes. It almost goes without saying, really. Exactly, exactly. And uh, that, I'm joking, by the way, that I don't think Polynesians are worthy. They're delightful people and they have a rich, beautiful culture. <laughs> Just to be clear, I was being facetious. Uh-huh. And then there was another robbery attempt by um, a guy who was Singhalese, and he kept saying, Tiog, Tiog. So maybe yeah. he also believes that this was Tiog. And there's um, a guard that the, the guard has a nervous hallucination saying that he thinks the the petrified horror is moving in vague and subtle ways yes. every day. The notion that there our first guy is a Hawaiian and our second guy is uh, Singhalese, which means he's from Sri Lanka, from Ceylon, that's Lovecraft signposting the edges of, of, the, of the influence of Mew, right? From Hawaii right. all the way to Sri Lanka is how big this uh, this continent was and how big this cult is. Now, there's news articles are speculating that these people that are doing this are descended from the priest of Mu and that they're trying to get to Yog back. That's I mean, the, the press is saying this. So, th- I mean, that's pretty, pretty crazy that the press is being yeah. that they're taking this crazy mythology that nobody's ever heard of before and talking about it like it's real. Yeah, it's really crazy. Like outside of, you know, the Weekly World News or something like that, who would really be talking in the news? newspaper about a living brain and a mummy. Do you, can you imagine that being in any major newspaper? I mean, no. Well, you know the Boston Pillar. They'll just publish anything. <laughs> <laughs> That old rag. So the speculation continues that what's going on is that the cult has the true 
scroll and they're trying to bring Tiag back to life with it. Right, because you can use that scroll, right? right exactly, yeah. The legend was that you can use the scroll to take people that were petrified and bring them back to life. So um, Doc Johnson decides he's going to finally give the mummy a thorough inspection and see if it actually was changing. And that's when he gets this taxidermist guy, Dr. Moore, to come in and, and check it out. Mm. And it seems like there might be some changes going on with it. Yeah, it's definitely disintegrating. That's what they think, but yeah. things are changing. And people start to get, you know, a lot more people are showing up. They're freaking out. A Peruvian shows up and and has a, a an attack of some kind and says that yeah. Tiag tried to open his eyes. And on November 24th, after closing, one of the guards noticed a minute opening of the mummy's eyes. So the eyes are starting to open very mm-hmm. slowly pretty nasty and then two nights later a sullen filipino was trying to secrete himself (laughs) these adjectives are great um try trying to secrete himself in the that old stereotype of the sullen filipino (laughs) every time i see a filipino in a in a a film or tv i say really did they have to be sullen (laughs) can't you just have a lively filipino once (laughs) just once does it always have to be that way? <laughs> oh, golly. This happens shortly after we hear about that. It was during the early morning hours of Thursday, December 1st, that a terrible climax developed. At about one o'clock, horrible screams of mortal fright and agony were heard issuing from the museum, and a series of frantic telephone calls from neighbors brought to the scene quickly and simultaneously a squad of police and several museum officials, including myself. Some of the policemen surrounded the building, while others, with the officials, cautiously entered. In the main corridor, we found the night watchman strangled to death, a bit of East Indian hemp still knotted around his neck, and realized that despite all precautions, some darkly evil intruder or intruders had gained access to the place. Now, however, a tomb-like silence enfolded everything, and we almost feared to advance upstairs to the fateful wing where we knew the core of the trouble must lurk. We felt a bit more steadied after flooding the building with light from the central switches in the corridor, and finally crept reluctantly up the curving staircase and through a lofty archway to the Hall of Mummies. That ends chapter four. Yeah, that gets us into the conclusion here where we're going to find out what all the hullabaloo is about. So they, uh, uh, they head up there, and... They find these bodies, right? Yep. Now, they sort of step back because Dr. J says that, that this is the only truth that's that's out there. Everybody was interested. The press was interested in all this stuff before. But when this came out, everything fell quiet. Nobody talked about it. But now you're getting the straight scoop. Two dead guys were found. It was a Burmese fella and a Fiji Islander. Mm-hmm. And the, the Burmese uh, man, he laid... Uh, on the mum- in the nameless mummy's case and he had a duplicate of the scroll that was the mummy's in his hand. He had no injuries but appeared to be dead from fright. <laughs> and then the Fijian, the, the policeman sees the Fijian and he cries out in fright because this guy, he's a ash gray figure of stony leathery petrif- I mean, he's been turned to stone been, and leather. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yet, that was not the worst. Crowning all other horrors, and indeed seizing our shocked attention before we turned to the bodies on the floor, was the state of the frightful mummy. No longer could its changes be called vague and subtle, for it had now made radical shifts of posture. It had sagged and slumped with a curious loss of rigidity. Its bony claws had sunk until they no longer even partly covered its leathery, fear-crazed face. And, God help us, 
its hellish bulging eyes had popped wide open and seemed to be staring directly at the two intruders who had died of fright, or worse. Whoa! So the mummy had opened its eyes. Now, I mean, when it says that, it makes it sound like the mummy actually has eyes, as opposed to most mummies are, you know, their eyes would be all dried up and stuff. You know, there wouldn't be anything to open, but it sounds like it has kind of fresh eyes. I mean, is that, did you guys get that out of it? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I okay. think that's because when Tiag, and let's not pretend, we know this is Tiag. Yeah, we know what happened here. Right. Yes. Um, uh, when Tiag sees uh, Gatnathoa there in the crypt, he throws his arms up to protect himself, and he probably squeezes his eyes shut, and then uh-huh. his eyelids get turned to stone and leather, but his eyes are still alive like his brain. Yes. Right. What do you bet? I think I think, well, I think you're right. Now, this is maybe a little confusing, because you go, wait a minute, I thought you needed to see Gatnathoa to be turned to stone, mm-hmm. right? And Gatnathoa is nowhere to be seen, just... Tiag is there. So we do a little, there's a little bit of exploration that goes on at this point. (laughs) (laughs) So he brings up this, um, you know, ever hear that where the last thing you see before you die is somehow branded into your eye? The photographic image on your retina. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. That gets brung up here out of the blue. Uh, And now you can kind of, once that gets brought up, it becomes pretty obvious that what happened was when Tiag's eye opened up, the Fiji Islander looked into his eye and saw the image of Gadanathoa and then turned to stone. Yeah. And and we know this because uh, the doctor, he looks just in a flash when he's trying to magnify the eye of the mummy, he sees that Gadanathoa coming up through the trapdoor of his vault. You know, he sees that image there. This this reminded me of the Unnameable had a similar device in it. Yeah. The Unnameable. Creature was looking through the glass long enough that his image was preserved. I mean, these are things that aren't, they can't happen, right? I mean, it's just... No. What I enjoy is the way that uh, Lovecraft hangs a lantern on it where he, where he has Johnson say, I'd always been rather skeptical of the theory. Mm. <laughs> so Lovecraft is saying <laughs> to you, the audience, all right, we know this is nonsense, but come on, you're, you're, you followed me all this way with a mummy, so let's... <laughs> <laughs> let's let's just go all the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the description of Gadanathoa is really vague. Yeah. The doctor says I might call it gigantic, tentacled, proboscidean, octopus-eyed, semi-amorphous, plastic, partly squamous and partly rugose. <laughs> and then he goes, ugh. ugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now he sees this by looking in, in one of the eyes and faints afterwards because I guess the other eye has a better image of it. And that's the one that, that the Fiji Islander looked in because obviously our man didn't turn to stone. So he just yeah, got he a didn't. he just got a glimpse of it and was able to write afterwards conveniently. Yeah. <laughs> so then they do an autopsy of the of the dead guy, the Fiji Islander that had died, and when they cut open his head they find out that his brain is still preserved and still living. Yeah. And several other internal organs. Exactly. And uh, the facts were kept out of the news. This document is it. This is the only docu- documentation. But then they do an examination of, of the original mummy, you know, kind of an autopsy on it to, to really check it out. So this uh, eminent Dr. William Minot comes, he shows up with Dr. with Wentworth Moore, who's the taxidermist. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Minot, uh, he's sort of the, the forensic guy who's going to have a look into the mummy and, and see what the condition is on the inside uh, and why the, the position of the eyes are moving around and that, and that sort of thing. So they, they take him there and they begin this examination. And Dr. Minot exclaims aloud when he cuts through into the gray mummified substance. But his exclamation was still louder when he made the first deep incision, for out of that cut there slowly trickled a thick crimson stream whose nature, despite the infinite ages dividing this hellish mummy's lifetime from the present, was utterly unmistakable. A few more deft strokes revealed various organs in astonishing degrees of non-petrified preservation, 
all indeed being intact except where injuries to the petrified exterior had brought about malformation or destruction. The resemblance of this condition to that found in the fright-killed Fiji Islander was so strong that the eminent physician gasped in bewilderment. The perfection of those ghastly bulging eyes was uncanny, and their exact state with respect to petrification was very difficult to determine. At 3.30pm the brain case was opened, and ten minutes later our stunned group took an oath of secrecy which only such guarded documents as this manuscript will ever modify. Even the two reporters were glad to confirm the silence, for the opening had revealed a pulsing, living brain. Dun, dun, dun. And that is the end of the story. That's it. We all saw that coming, but it is still particularly horrifying to think that you'd be stuck in there alive for so long. Yeah, it's pretty. It's I. It's a hokey story, uh, but I I did enjoy this one. Yeah, I I liked the the bit at the I, the part where he talks about the, the the strange lassitude and the and the stiffness and the rigor that they were all feeling as they're moving through the room with the with the mummy and the two dead guys in it. Yeah, that actually forgetting the fact that you know exactly how it's going to end, that effect is a good scary effect. I, I you think it might almost work a little bit better if you did it in a movie where you wouldn't have to sort of come out and say, gosh, I'm feeling mysteriously rigid. You could just sort of, um, uh, yeah, show them moving slowly or whatever, you know, mess around with the, with the imaging. It's, it's just a really good bit. And it's sort of this really nice piece of genuinely eerie, scary stuff. And new. Just sort of tacked on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Something we, we haven't seen Lovecraft do a million times over. And it's tacked on to his sort of tossed off uh, rewrite of Call of Cthulhu with uh, Robert E. Howard middle section yeah um, i don't know that it annoyed me but it made me sort of wish that the whole story had been as good as those three or four paragraphs well i mean i for, for i know because we're reading these stories every week pretty much and i know some some stories are harder to read than others and this one went pretty fast for me and that's usually an indication of, of my enjoyment if i can get through it and just go hey yeah all right good if it's one of those where I have to put it down and keep picking up and rereading things because I wasn't paying attention as I was reading, you know, it's not yeah. a very good story. And that happens, unfortunately, with some of these, and especially with the team-ups when Lovecraft does them. Now, a little background on it. It was just written in August 1933, and it wasn't published in Weird Tales until 35. Under under Hazel's name. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He does, Lovecraft does say something about this. I'll add this in here. Um, when working on the story, H.P. Lovecraft wrote... In a letter, he said, Out of aeons may be regarded as a story of my own. The only thing supplied by the alleged authoress is the idea of an ancient mummy found to have a living brain. And he said that to Barlow in, um, in April of 1935. Elsewhere, he also says, Regarding the scheduled out of the aeons, I should say I did have a hand in it. I wrote the damn thing. <laughs> so there, there you go. It's definitely a, Love, a Lovecraftian it's a Lovecraft story. Yeah, and it, I think that the interest in it is, um, I mean, like you say, it, it rockets along. It's it's a fast read. It's a good read. You're not, you're certainly not really tired of it or, you know, trying to find excuses not to read it. I enjoy it as a sort of a second-rate pulp story. Yeah, exactly. And then what I think is, is interesting about it is reading it as a circa 1933 take on Call of Cthulhu. So you try and read it as Lovecraft saying, what in that original story do I like enough to go back and look at again? And interestingly enough, it's not the things that you might think. It's the notion of literally a message, or in this case, an image being passed down from ancient times. And also it's the, the, the cult full of weird foreigners. And yeah. those, are the, those seem to be the things that Lovecraft really picks up on in his own story. And 
and you know what 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 Joshi would call the cosmicism not as present in the story that it's much more about relics and and cults which yeah. is weird I mean it may be because it was a revision and he didn't feel like he had to um, uh, bring the a game you know philosophically for it right. but I, I think that it's interesting that when Lovecraft goes back and rewrites his own story this is what he looks at yeah absolutely it's 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 a really cool story I recommend people should read it it's online you can get it at hplovecraft.com and, and check it out it's a fun one I just want to say that this is the last this is the last uh, recording for 2011 and we'll be back in 2012 with uh, the thing on the doorstep yes and thank you again so much for doing this with us today Ken hey guys thanks so much for having me on I always love uh, doing the podcast the podcraft cast <laughs> especially during the I think my fever's kicking back in I'm starting to get a little uh, things aren't making as much sense to me right that's, now that's right sleep deprived feverish podcast is better than the other kind <laughs> Uh, I want to thank our reader, Mark Major. Did a great Wait, job. Hold on, hold on. If you want to see what Pfeiffer looks like fevered, uh, go ahead and take a look at uh, the Call of Cthulhu movie. <laughs> That's true. Because Pfeiffer is pretty fevered and uh, and uh, demented in that in that movie. That's exactly what happens. Yeah, that's what I look yeah. like right now. Uh, I want to say thanks to our reader, Mark Major, uh, for doing such a great job. And uh, hopefully we'll have him back again sometime. Uh, and uh, happy holidays, everybody. We might uh, spin out some more of those Andrew Lehman, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, Christmas, Christmas poems. poems. Yeah. Yeah. You can go back and listen to the festival again. Yeah, the festival will be a great choice for your holiday gatherings. Yuletide and all that. Yeah, plenty mm-hmm. of Yuletide action. Um, with that, I'm Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. Kenneth Height. And this has been the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Yay. Raw. H.P. Podcraft.com. Ah!